I mean, the follow-ups were amazing. The tenacity of... Yes! Did Are you saying you never met her or that you didn't meet her on that day? Yeah. And he would say, I, I, I don't recall meeting her. I, I have no memory of that at all. So did it not happen? Or yeah. do you just not remember it? I Is have, there any way you could have forgotten? I, I, <laughs> I never forget things. I never hug people and I never whatever. <laughs> 
Or maybe if you are super famous, like maybe you send your your assistant to your hometown of whatever. Yeah. To dig them out with your mom. But again, like, can you think, I can't even begin to understand how this process goes down. I already know the answer. Oh, are I you think serious? I, I think I already know the answer. Okay, tell me. This is the answer. And the reason I know this is because I work on a talk show in Canada. It's called The Social. Yes. And we share our personal lives, right? Right. We peg a story and we're like, oh, this thing happened. And oh, it also happened to me when I was five. Yeah. My co-hosts, mm-hmm. for one in particular, mm-hmm. has so many pictures of herself that she can put up on the show. Like pictures from communion, pictures from going Christmas tree Well, shopping. now I know who it is. But <laughs> Christmas, um, no, I don't think you do. Um, uh, Christmas tree shopping, pictures from, and I never have photos. Like, it is so hard for me to find photos. And I always say to them, how, like, we decided we were going to talk about this an hour ago. How did you already find the Christmas tree photo from when you were three? And she's like, Facebook. So people, I, I don't know that you did this when you were on Facebook, but... Aunts and uncles, as we know, is the place that they hang out is Facebook now and grandparents. Lots of them have already preloaded that shit onto Facebook. I mean, fair. And, but I don't think that that works in all situations because, uh, you, I I think if you are, so obviously the situation I'm talking about, I was rewatching the morning show because that's where I'm at with the morning show. This is like your third time? Yeah. Yeah. And there is a montage of Reese Witherspoon pictures. Now, you know that Reese Witherspoon has been famous long enough that her aunts and uncles have been told, lock that stuff down. Like, you don't have those photos out there. Or if they are, then those photos are going to be considered tainted. Um, or if you're on some HBO show or something, they're not going to take the photo that has already been liked by 789 people, uh, you need to find something new because we're meant to believe that this is the fictional character's childhood, right? It's not like, yeah, of course, there are certain pictures of uh, Britney Spears that we, as a child, that we see all the time, right? Or like, I don't know, the Olsen twins or whatever. They're supposedly candid shots we've seen a million times. Yeah. But when we're supposed to believe that it is, say, God, I don't know, like, Selma Blair as a child, or uh, who else? Uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar. Sure, whomever. I'm just going through the Cruel Intentions cast now. Uh, Right, yeah. Like, uh, (laughs) sure. Yeah, exactly, all those people. Or like, uh, yeah, or yes, we need to find a picture of Adam Scott as a a child, right? You need not Adam Scott as a child, but the fictional character. So it has to be something nobody has seen. I Like, I believe that Facebook is a super valid place to go. Yeah. But I'm just saying, I think there are a lot of productions where that wouldn't pass muster. Or, to extend the metaphor, where the beleaguered intern who has to do this comes up with some, and then somebody's like, I've seen that before. Is that on her Instagram? And then you have to go back to square one and call their mom to dig out the storage facility. Only you would be thinking that that would be an interesting thing to do. 
I, come on, I'm not, it is an interesting thing to do. And if you are like- an- Not to me, because uh, you're making it sound like you have to talk to the family and that is not, I have no interest in that. I don't want you to do it, but I want to know how it works. I'm nosy and I want to know how it works. If you're an assistant editor, please tell me, like, you know how there's a whole network of uh, sort of junior uh, employees at any- institution. Yeah. If you are the assistant editor who has been charged with putting these things in, tell me what coordinator you're calling. Tell me who the coordinator had to call in the hometown or with the family or to track down the talent or the talent's like a personal assistant to get this mess. I need to know how this works out. Great. Can we move on now? I... (laughs) Pardon me. That was a very compelling six minutes, and you know it was. It was great. You Let just us want... know how celebrity baby pictures make it onto a TV show. The ones that you haven't already seen, please. Yes. Uh, you just want to move on because this is basically, it's been your birthday for at least a week with this story. It, it's been, look, I've been a dog with a bone. Is that the expression? I, that means you won't let it go. But in this case, it's like you're, you have, you'd like to buy the world a bone. You know what I mean? Like you have enough of, to share with everyone. It's, it's a thing that I've been, I, how, when I've been, how long am I going at this for? August, September, October, November, four months where I've, any chance I get, I have written about Prince Andrew. Um, so by now, most of you know, Prince Andrew, after a disastrous interview with BBC's Newsnight, has announced that he would be stepping down. He will be stepping down from official public duties for the British royal family for the, quote, foreseeable future. I.e. forever. Like, and uh, yes. He's not rejoining. Like, you don't no. get to, like, tap back in when you pay up your membership fees. Yeah. He's done. He's done. For It says for the foreseeable future. And in the foreseeable future, unless, you know, there are some answers about his involvement with Jeffrey Epstein, I just don't see how it's possible that he's going to come back out. But this only happened because, like, these allegations and these accusations have been going on for the better part of a decade, okay? And you mean about Jeffrey Epstein as and a Prince, whole, his associates uh, in general. Prince yes. Andrew was one of them. Yes. Maybe the boldest of the bold-faced names. Correct. Yeah. And then it got, like, closer when the the accuser unearthed the photo. Speaking of photos, mm-hmm. right? Unearthed the photo and it was like, those aren't my fingers. My fingers right. are fat. But the photos have been out, or that particular photo, has been out for, again, almost 10 years. Right. So there was a long time where people didn't care about the story, didn't care enough about the story, and nobody cared. And then Jeffrey Epstein died, and we have snowballed to this point. But... Had Prince Andrew not done this interview, he would not be stepping down for the foreseeable future. Correct. So we are today focusing on the work on the other side. It's already been established that Prince Andrew did terrible work in that interview. But not just him, because of course, Cor- of course. there are a million people who had to say yes to this. Oh my God. His handlers, his staff, his office, all of them fucked it up. And just... Because I know you'll know, for your trivia question, your first of the podcast, tell me the name of his advisor who quit over the decision to do this. He said, don't do it. 
Prince Andrew and team said, I'm doing it. And he was like, I'm out. What was his name? Jason Stein. Right. Where do you think he is drinking a triumphant (laughs) drink right now? Exactly. Like, is he in Bora Bora being like, fuck it, told you so. He, listen, if, if there's a guy who could, can say, I told you so and peace out motherfuckers and gets hired based on the job he didn't take or quit, Uh that's the guy. Yeah. Right. For sure. Uh, if you can smell a disaster yeah. and tell people to avoid it, yeah, yeah, that's a good line. First on your line resume. on the fucking resume, yeah. right? Is I was the dude who told Prince Andrew not to do the interview when he didn't listen to me. I quit. Hire him, hundred percent. But on on the other side of terrible work on the part of the royals, who you would think <laughs> should deliver good work. I, well, no, I'm going to really be honest. No, it, it, that is based on a precedent that I don't know when it was established, but it has been decimated steadily. Fair point. Every time you and I have talked about it, put it that way. Fair point. Fair point. So on the other side of that shitty work is very, very good work on the part of the team from BBC Newsnight. And... It just so happens that two of those main players, Emily Maitlis, the journalist who interviewed Prince Andrew, and uh, her producer, Sam McAllister, have given interviews or written first-person accounts of what it was like producing and or hosting and presenting the program. Yeah. Emily had a first-person account that was way more entertaining than I ever thought it would be in, I think, the Times of London late last week. Uh, Early on, there's a reference to Sweaty Betty's, and I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be great. Yeah. Um, And which was delicious and in-depth. And then, yes, yesterday, her producer was interviewed by GQ UK. That's right. So Sam McAllister has spoken about how she secured the interview. And the reason why this, like these two accounts are connected is because even in Emily's piece for the Times, she gives credit many times to the people who she worked with, her colleagues, including Sam. She says that it was Sam who got the interview, who was working with the palace for six months. We know that to negotiate the terms, rejected the terms initially, then it came back. So we want to talk about the work that these two women put into this huge, momentous, exclusive interview that essentially, I mean, they didn't do it, but that essentially led to the stepping down of a prince of England from royal duty. Yeah. I mean, they kind of did do it, right? It, one thinks it might, once you were there, having secured that interview, it would be hard to screw it up. But it is early and often mentioned that this is, to this point, the most important interview of either woman's career. Yes. To the point where the first question, I just, I don't want to dive right in, but the first question. She dove right in. Well, they both (laughs) drove right in. But I guess at the risk of putting the cart before the horse before the cart, the first question that GQ asks the producer, Sam McAllister, is uh, about how does it feel that this is so unusual that producers such as you are getting a bit more recognition <laughs> and are being touted on social media mm-hmm. as the heroes of the story? Mm-hmm. Like conventional wisdom, which is maybe changing, but conventional wisdom says as a producer, yeah. you're supposed to be invisible. Yes. You are not supposed to exist. Yeah. And that doesn't mean you're not important 
uh, viewers have an outsized estimation of what hosts do, and they do a huge and incredible job, but it's often a real partnership, ballet, whatever Mm -hmm. euphemism you want. We've talked about this before. We made the comparison where, let's say, on a film set scripted, um, the director is the boss. On a feature. On a feature. In this kind of scenario, when you are in, like, broadcast news, this kind of journalism, the producer is the director. It's the equivalent. In both editorially and in what we're doing in the moment in terms of cameras or we have to ask this again or whatever. Absolutely. It means a different thing in this case, Sam McAllister's work as a producer, than it does in film and television where a producer does an entirely different thing. Yeah. And producer titles are given away in different ways and they're important jobs. Also, the point is Sam McAllister and Emily Maitlis would have been together living and breathing this story for conservatively like literal weeks before this and obviously afterwards. And in the days before it was, because they were waiting, right? Like, you know, the story goes that it was going to happen, but they didn't have, we, they had to wait for Prince Andrew to go to the higher ups, meaning her majesty. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I believe the interview happened on Thursday, a Thursday at Buckingham Palace. It was on Monday uh, that Prince Andrew said, yeah, my mother said yes, so let's do it on Thursday. So yes, they were preparing, preparing, but like the crunch would have been that Monday getting word and then 48 hours to study, study, study. And as Emily Maitlis writes in her piece, They did mock interview after mock interview after mock interview. And I believe she says it was Sam who was the one playing Prince Andrew. Right. Um, Which seems like it would be, it seems as though it wouldn't be a thing to do because if you're worried about being tripped up or about a hostile guest or whatever, how can somebody who's on your team wants it to go well for you be able to play that role? Right. But nobody knows more what the pitfalls can be than somebody who's been through it and seen it, right? And as much as we say the producer is the boss in that scenario, the on-air host, who's often, you know, given a producer credit themselves, often doing a ton of work, it varies from show to show, is the one who has to go out there and actually execute, Mm -hmm. has to not let them get away with something. Just to case in point… Late in the game, everybody's seen it, but late in the game, Prince Andrew says, yes, yes, uh, uh, Jeffrey Estine, uh, so unbecoming, his behavior. And she goes, unbecoming? He was molesting and abusing young girls. And the word you choose is unbecoming. I mean, that was implied. She didn't say that out loud, but it hung in the air. But he comes back with, oh, well, I was was being being polite. polite. I was whatever. (laughs) But my point is that… It's that's training on Emily's part to not let it go by, to not be intimidated by the royal family. Yeah. Like, let's be real here. They're being given unprecedented access. They interviewed him in… Buckingham Palace. Specifically in, like, Her Majesty's special quarters, right? That's also in Emily Maitlis's piece, that it was, like… Some fancy-ass quarter wing of the palace. That might have been like a tacit sort of endorsement from the queen or something. So 
of course you would be intimidated. Of course, any time that you bust your ass and pray and beg and hope for an interview, as uh, Sam McAllister talks mm-hmm. about, you're always asking for the impossible, she yeah. says. So when you get there, it can be really understandable that you would feel pressured to go easy, to be thankful for the fact that you yeah. are there, to not ask the hard, weird question. So part of that training is to go there each time, not to be yeah. feeling like cowed by the fact that you're sitting in front of the alleged favorite prince Well, until and the other day. That's also just the genius of this essay and this behind-the-scenes write-up that Emily has provided us with, and also Sam McAllister, because here's – and I hate to go there, but I'm going to. When we have had in the past – similar shares of similar experiences by, let's call it, male journalists. We're not told about the sweatiness of their bodies, how they were insecure that they were wearing uh, sweat pants and sweaty Betty clothes. By the way, um, for those of you not familiar, Sweaty Betty is a brand in the UK that is the equivalent, I guess, of like Lululemon in North America, but I we... Duane and I both love Sweaty Betty. It's athleisure. Yeah. Um, yes, it's athleisure. 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 Are we really spending our time <laughs> on this right now? Right. So it's athleisure. So she's giving us the details of, fuck, I was like in my Sweaty Bettys. Like I was haggard and disorganized. And the moment I walked in the room with him, I basically went to the bathroom. And found chocolate on my teeth. That's right. So it's actually quite... It's actually quite refreshing because if you are getting the, let before he was disgraced, the, the Matt Lowers and the Charlie Roses, if they were recounting a similar situation, you're not getting the fact that like fucking their balls were sweaty or, you know, they had to put extra deodorant on or that they like s- sweated through three shirts. Yeah. They had nervous gas, no. whatever. But it's obviously it is relevant because it's relevant, because it makes you feel as though you were there, because we've all had that experience of showing up somewhere nervous and sweaty and trying to appear cool. But also… No, but not only this, they can tell us this because we know how it went. Well, but… Right? Well, yes. And let's recall that in that interview, how much time did we spend on clothing? Prince fucking Andrew… In a, am I allowed to say that? Will I be assassinated by the Queen's uh, official service? I don't know, because we don't know how Jeffrey Epstein died, so be Uh, careful. All right. His Majesty, His Highness, His Highness. His Royal Highness. His Royal Highness spent a lengthy amount of time trying to discredit photo evidence that he was in a given place at a given time by saying, well, I don't wear that. I wear suits when I travel. And, and I don't sweat. And I don't sweat. And I don't, uh, <laughs> and clearly that was leisure wear, which means I was there on a given day, which means I was traveling at a given, like it actually is kind of brilliant echoing yeah. of the way he was trying to use the most pedestrian facts to wiggle out of what he allegedly may or may not have done. Right. Uh <laughs> Thank you. I am a happy part of the Commonwealth. Um, you're, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, the irony is that while she's sharing with us literally her sweats and chocolate stains, 
he's the one trying to exonerate himself with his sweats and chocolate stains, and they play completely in different ways. Her sweats speak to her hard work in preparing for it and her nerves, understandable nerves, but her readiness because as sweaty and chocolate-toothed as she was, my God, the composure. I mean, when you watch that interview, there's no evidence of sweat. There's no evidence of chocolate. There is only someone who is very prepared, whose colleagues prepared her, whose colleagues were just as prepared as she was, and she was dealing with a fucking amateur. Let me ask you a question. Uh, You've done hundreds of interviews. I've done a fair number myself in this kind of scenario, but a lot more pitches in big rooms in front of a lot of people, same energy, different kind of process. Yeah. What's, what's your stance? Because people have different stances. What is your stance on feeling nervous and whether that's a necessary part of the process? I, you're right. I, of course, I don't get as nervous for some interviews, Mm -hmm. but there's always a rush. There's Mm -hmm. always like, I wouldn't call it a doubt, but an adrenaline surge of importance, right? Yes. Yeah. And a sense of anticipation, definitely nerves in the sense of, um, you're always worried that that person won't respond to your questions. That's Mm -hmm. natural. Mm -hmm. Um, and the nerves come from how am I going to pivot? Would you worry though, if you didn't have nerves, if you walked into a situation totally chill, not nervous, not wondering with one corner of your brain about how your outfit was sitting, would that be some sort of indicator to you? Or the other way of asking that is, is nervousness actually an indicator that you have done your homework? No, I, 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 I wish I could give the easy answer to that, but no, I've had interviews that went beautifully where I wasn't nervous at all. At all at all. At all at all. Mm-hmm. But you just finished saying there's always a there's always a something. Yeah, there's a rush, but there's not necessarily that sense of intimidation. I guess what I'm maybe it's about different words because I think of a rush as a positive feeling afterwards. Right. But that jangliness beforehand, like whether it's two percent or eighty percent, if I feel nothing, if mm-hmm. I feel zero jangles, if I feel zero yeah. anticipation, then I'd be like, oh, there's something wrong. You no, want a little of it. There's always a, like, again, so my rush is different. Like, my rush is, like, right before I go on on set, right before we start rolling, I do get a, a tingle, a rush. So I'm never, like, placid. But I wouldn't say it's always a nervous rush. Sometimes it's just an excited rush, a calm rush, like, as I know that that seems like an like an oxymoron, but there are rushes that that are that are that are almost I don't know soothing. It's really hard to explain. All right. Well, you sound like an Instagram account, but uh, you know, like yeah. I can see you talking about art about different rushes and things. It's, but let me uh, here. I'll take it this way. Uh, it's better when I can give concrete examples. I was very nervous before Sandra O. Mm-hmm. I was and it. I think that our, I think that interview went beautifully. I was not nervous at all, but still hype for common. Uh-huh. And that interview went beautifully. Uh-huh. 
So I wonder if it's related to the person. Because Common has, Common's vibe is like, oh, I, right? Common all, makes you feel extraordinarily comfortable just yes. like being in a Starbucks line. Right? So yeah. it's not like I wasn't excited to interview him. I just wasn't like, you know, hyperactive. I think what I'm talking about is the prep. If yeah. you, If I have prepped enough for any given interview or, or pitch, then I'm in my head checking. Did I prep this? Did I prep that? Did mm-hmm. I, do I remember my answer to this question, et yeah. cetera, or vice versa? If I had none of that, if I was going in thinking about my grocery list, mm-hmm. then I would, I haven't done my work. Right. And thus, like the lack of nerves, the lack of checking and balancing myself is itself an indicator. All of this to say, I suspect that Emily's nervousness and fussing about her teeth and whatnot is because she had, on some subconscious level, she had done the work work, Mm -hmm. right? She's fussing about her sweat and what she looks like because the fussing about the information that's going to be relayed has happened, has been done. Agree? Disagree? That's a great point. I didn't think of it that way. I thought of it in terms of just the straight up intimidation of going to Buckingham Palace. Yeah. Like, you know, the place where those guards with the helmets on with the fur on them walk around. Mm -hmm. So going in with those to a place with those guards and having to ask the son of the queen, did you rape a girl? Because she says you did. Right. Did it maybe happen on a day when you don't remember? Yeah. Are you saying, she asked him about seven times, the tenacity of, yes. Did are you saying you never met her or that you didn't meet her on that day? Yeah. And he would say, I, I, I don't recall meeting her. I, I have no memory of that at all. So did it not happen or yeah. do you just not remember it? I Is have, there any way you could have forgotten? I, I, I never forget things. I never hug people and I never whatever. <laughs> No, and I I think that, to me, that's where I put myself in. But your perspective on, like, yeah, she was fussing about the chocolate and her clothes and the sweaty Bettys because everything else had been taken care of. So now the only thing to sweat is the small stuff. Or, yeah, or you have to put your brain on those small things because the big things are ingrained in your bones by that point, you know? And then it becomes a matter of, you know, and this is what she doesn't really write about um, and – I don't think that there was time in her piece in where she was going, but then it becomes a matter of letting your natural conversational curiosity take over. You've done the research, you know your facts, you've memorized the timeline, you know the names, the places, the dates. Now it's about responding in real time to his answers and doing the, like, I mean, the follow-ups were amazing. There have been times we talk about all the time, like even Oprah, as you've heard me say, I have a problem with some of her follow-ups, like that she just doesn't, she doesn't go to the follow-up that the viewer wants sometimes. I don't disagree with you at all. I think that it is an underrated skill in both in television interviewers and in life. This is your real-world application. Uh, I'm stealing it out from under you. You have to be an active listener. Mm-hmm. So many times in interviews yep. um, and in other places, you hear 
somebody drop a bombshell and somebody else go, now you've been a blah, 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 blah. And you're like, no, <laughs> go back there. Don't just flip to the next yeah. cue card in your mind. Cause yeah. you can see that that's what they're doing. They've mentally just been going my turn. And now it's just talking, 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 yeah. talking, talking. Okay. My turn to ask another question. You have to listen actively and it will make such a difference. I promise you in your like, look, I'm a human being who I'm pretty good at it in like a work business context. I'm as bad as anybody else if I'm talking to my spouse, right? I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, uh-huh. no, but Duanna, you pick every fucking thread. I love to pick a thread. <laughs> but I don't miss shit either. You know no, how many that's times- what I'm saying. You are the person who's not going to turn the page, flip the page, and ask the next question. No, but you, how many times, like, you've also tried to slip stuff by me before, and I'm like, <laughs> go back. What, what was that little catch in your voice? What was that, right? Yeah. I'm saying. Anyway, so they, I mean, I think about the adrenaline dump after this happened. Because, mm-hmm. of course, your favorite detail or one of your favorite details is that after they finish this interview, which they must have known on some level was putting the lid on Prince Andrew's career. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for, I'm sure it's very civilized at Buckingham Palace, but Generally speaking, you see Emily Maitland, uh, Emily uh, on a chair and Prince Andrew on a chair. Everybody else in the room, the camera guys are standing. Yeah. But the producer, I guarantee you, is like crouching. Crouching. Yep. Because she's got to be able to see Emily's eyeline and only that. Sam's crouching for sure. A hundred percent. Her quads are screaming. Yeah. And then Andrew's handlers are not crouching. No, they, they are, are doing whatever they're standing do. very, very properly, yeah. like with perfect posture in a corner. And I'm not sure they're actually listening because if they had been listening, anyway, continue. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. Like if you are, yeah. I can't believe that you would ever dare to correct a royal in public, like in the moment. Mm-hmm. But yeah, who was not waving a red flag at him, being like, "Shut it." Don't say that thing. Well, listen, you were coming to the end of the interview and the part that I laughed at so much, um, especially in Emily Maitlis's, uh, sorry, in uh, Sam uh, McAllister's piece in GQ, when they come to the end of the interview and, I mean, he has just fumbled it like really bad. Torched himself. Right? He is just fucking... Like, shit the bed. And then he says to them, let me give you a tour of this place. (laughs) Of, like, the private quarters of the palace. Right. And also, as Emily shares in her piece, they're invited to stay or come back for a screening of Judy. Like, oh, if you'd like to stay. Like, this is what kills me about Brits, right? It is polite and civilized to the fucking end. Well, to, to the end, but also I... Like, listen, Duanna, that's a generous assessment of what happened on the part of him and his staff. The ungenerous assessment, which is what I'm more prone to believe, is they didn't think it went badly. Because if it were me and you, for sure you, after what went down, even if you don't interrupt the prince and you don't cut him off or you don't, like, shut it down or whatever— You tell the people to stay. You lock them in the fucking room so that that footage can't go anywhere yet. You pull that motherfucker out and you read him the riot act. We're going to give them half an hour more. In this half an hour, you need to hit these 800 points. 
at least please hit the point where you feel bad for the victims. Can you, can you say that? None of that happened. Instead, a tour and a screening were offered. Then they let them out the door with the tape. And from there, I'm like, how did you let this happen? You're the royal family. Could the royal family made a call to the BBC and been like, uh, what do we need to offer you for you to kill this? Well, and I think the answer is no, right? Like part of the both pieces that we haven't gone into is that Newsnight was really adamant about we will not send you any questions beforehand. Oh, it's going to be super open. And oh, actually, sure. ironically, they're both really complimentary of Prince Andrew that he was so open and gave long <laughs> answers and yes. didn't try to, you That's know. That's another thing. He didn't try to stonewall them anywhere. So, I mean, if you're, yeah, I don't know what, whether that was, I don't know what fell down there, whether it's just gross inexperience or. They, listen, for years and years, there are a lot of people who haven't thought that this, this whole situation was that bad. And if this is the sort of way to tie that all up, if they blinked or they missed it because they continued to not think any of this was that bad, then my God, what does it say about all of this? I mean, I'll give you the honest answer first. It's they haven't been in a situation of ever having to take seriously um, a member of the royal family looking this bad, right? The royal family has terrible press a lot, but they always manage to blame it on an outsider. Mm -hmm. It's Megan. It's Kate. It's Diana. It's whatever racist that wore that brooch who married into the family, right? It's never been somebody who has been born. Or if it's like uh, Prince Charles and Tampon Gate and whatnot, it's yeah. like, oh, well, it was private. Yeah. Nobody's ever believed that it was possible, I think, to mess up in front of the press this badly or for the <laughs> press to be this, uh, I don't know, like un unworshipful. That's my sincere answer. Yeah. Here's my other answer. Uh -huh. While you were talking, I got the greatest idea for a movie of like the fictional queen deciding that her press officers need like guerrilla training and like the dirtiest tabloid people coming into the palace to like put them through a training course of special ops. I volunteer as tribute. I know you do. That would be amazing. <laughs> I just, I would love to see you sitting opposite somebody named like, Ainsley Whitthorpe, Alsopren, <laughs> um, like being like, yeah. no, they're thinking about his sex life. And she's like, how unbecoming. And you're like, you have to answer a yeah. question about his penis or not. I 100%. And, but here's, listen, here's where I want to tie it back to these two amazing women who were so great at their jobs and particularly Sam uh, McAllister. Because... In this GQ interview, and I would have done this too if I were the reporter from GQ, she is asked repeatedly, uh -huh. did you know that this would break the royals? Right. Like, <laughs> um, do you think that your interview with him was his ultimate fuck up that basically ended him? Like, you know, I'm if I'm the reporter in this case, what I'm trying to get her to say is, Fuck yeah, I did that. And asking it, you're, what you're illustrating is asking the same question in three different ways. That's right. She doesn't go there. All she says is, I can't speculate. 
I can't speculate on how people have received his answers. I can't speculate. I will not speculate on the effect that his answers have had. Um, All I can say is we went there to do a job and he was very nice to us. And the thing is, she doesn't, and I I wish I had the self-restraint to do this. They don't have to gloat. Well, a, oh my God. A, it's super classy, but B, it's also, you're right, they've done the job so well mm-hmm. that they don't need to gloat. They are somewhere having a very expensive bottle of something yeah. privately going, oh my God. They are Team Bartlett after the Richie debate where CJ says, listen, everybody, we're not spinning. It's not classy. Everybody watching this debate knows that Bartlett kicked Richie's ass. So we're not spinning. We'll send our experts out to spin. We are walking out of the room. Anyway, that was Sam McAllister, uh, the right move. And uh, for those of you wondering, I'm referring to the West Wing season four when Bartlett is up for re-election against Governor Richie and he literally kicks Governor Richie's ass in the debate. Right. I mean, here's my last rhetorical question. These two are, obviously, we're already a powerhouse team, are going to continue to be a powerhouse team. What the fuck interview compares to this? What comes next? Yeah. What comes next? I mean, if I'm any, in particular, UK politician, um, because, you know, that's where they're based, and I'm confident in my candidate, or I'm the team representing the politician or whoever, now I'm like, we, we want to sit down with Emily Maitlis. If you can pass the sit down with Emily Maitlis, yeah, I want to vote for you. Or, well, sure. Or I'm afraid of that, right? You can also yes. be like, nope, I'm not doing it if it's these two because yeah. I, I, don't know if, I don't know if we can stand up to that. This is rock star journalism. And credit to the Newsnight team um, uh, for, for sending in women. It, this is totally different if this is, I'm, you know, we're not there yet. I get it, but we're not there yet. But this needed to be done by a woman. I love that point uh, in terms of women not flinching in this scenario. Um, it's, yeah, it's exceedingly, exceedingly well done. And I will say, if you've only watched clips, if you've watched it all via like Twitter or other news magazines, give yourself a treat and sit down and watch the whole thing front to back because the way it unfolds is beautiful. It's beautiful. And you know what? Then chase it with Gail King and R. Kelly. For sure. And in both cases, since we're up and praising, we should credit the editors who don't get any love but who actually make it as smooth as it was. I don't doubt that it went that way, but it also is an art to put it all together. So... Cheers to everybody all around. Cheers to you for bringing back editors when you started the conversation with talking about editors and looking for photos from childhood Reese Witherspoon. Like you said, I don't leave a thread. (laughs) We'll be right back. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Okay, so next up, uh, we're talking about one of the people who I always worry whether I'm being too soft because I really like this person. Talking about Elizabeth Banks, I always find something to like in things she says, in projects she does, and of course, most recently, uh, she has been talking about Charlie's Angels. It came out. It did not do that well at the box office. And she's had a really curious reaction. So I wanted to talk about it with you mm-hmm. so that you would be my, what's that expression? Sober second thought? Uh, sure. About, you know, the way that she reacted and uh, and how she addresses some of this stuff. Yeah, so Charlie's Angels underperformed at the box office. Um, it was supposed to, like, according to projections, maybe bring in 15. It came way under 15 million. I think that they barely scratched 10. Um, and so it, you know, all the trades have been saying, it, calling it a major disappointment. Um, especially considering the IP. Yeah, it's a it's a franchise, right? Yeah. It's, it's something that in theory should be a gimme, especially yeah. because I don't know the numbers exactly of how well the the one did back in the day, Drew Barrymore and Lucy Liu and Cameron Diaz. It did Diaz. big numbers, yeah. It did. It was big time, right? And I think people underestimated that one at that time. True story? True story. And this Charlie's Angels opened in November – you don't, you know, November openings for movies are generally like you're confident. You, you know, you make money in November. If you open a movie with modest expectations in March, it's one thing. But November is aggressive. So, no, it didn't do well. And she has right away gotten right back out there on Twitter in interviews addressing directly the, quote, disappointment, if you want to call it that. Yeah, I mean… Early on, she said uh, this was uh, on the weekend. She was on Twitter saying, well, if you're going to have a flop, make sure your name is on it at least four times. I'm proud of Charlie's Angels and happy it's in the world. So uh, four times refers to, and that's actually happened on Monday that she said that. She directed this. She co-wrote it. She's a producer. And she stars. Right. She has a role. Yeah, I I would assume, yes. Yeah, she plays one of the Bosleys. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. So it's, I liked that tweet. Um, I will say, though, that uh, she, I almost feel like ahead of the opening of the movie, looking back, it was almost like she was anticipating it. You think so, eh? I do. I'm not questioning? I'm curious. I do. She did a panel interview. She was quoted, um, uh, you know, in an interview where she said, hey, you know what? I've gone to see movies that were made for men and it's time for men to come out and see movies that are made for women. Um, Which, you know. To me is a setup. That's interesting. Like that, you read it as sandbagging. It's a built-in. I mean, we talked in our last story about whether it was negligence or uh, naivete on the part of uh, the palace, right? And I sort of wonder a similar question here. Is it, was it an unfortunate statement that set up a binary where 
it didn't need to be? Or, yeah, was it a sandbag so that she could then sort of have a, an explanation? Listen, and all of this is hindsight, right? So, but she has linked, I mean, you can, you can link directly to um, her current statements after the fact to her previous statements before the movie opened. So the current statement, she made a statement about, um, you know, Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel. Yeah, she said they those movies did well because, of course, she now has to follow up that statement, right? Yeah. Like, for men to come out for women. So Charlie's Angels didn't do well, but, of course, yeah, those movies like Wonder Woman, like Captain Marvel, the asterisk, I suppose, is that they belong to franchises that are the domains of men, mm-hmm. right? Which eh, I feel like a few different ways about because God knows there were enough articles and and noise about, eh, do I care about Captain Marvel? Do I care about Wonder Woman when those movies came out, right? Yeah. And there was enough. We talked about Patty Jenkins and the skepticism around her directing Wonder Woman. There was enough of that at that time. Can this be done? Can they direct these? So I'm not sure if the male-female binary is quite the thing. Yeah, I… There is… Like, there's a shred of truth there, as you said. They belong to this domain that is comic book. Comic book fans are… There are obviously women who are comic book fans. And Hi, have Sarah. been. hundred… Yeah. Uh, yeah, for… Absolutely. But… I know dozens. It is a fandom that we hear more from the men, right? And historically, certainly, has been dominated yes. by it. Yeah. So what she's saying here is that Charlie's Angels has none of that foundation, and therefore… In order for uh, it to have worked, it really depended on, like, of course, women coming out to support it, but men having to be like, hey, I really don't have, like, um, a connection to this, but I want to see it anyway. Yeah, and I think the greater context there is, I wish you could see the two of us. We're making such faces as we tie ourselves in knots trying to uh, parse and unparse this, yeah, right? Yeah, it's thorny. It is thorny. Yeah. Because she, you know, as you read, I'm quoting an IndieWire article here where she is in turn being quoted in uh, The Sun. Um, but she talks, The Herald Sun, she talks about how the greater context for those comments about Wonder Woman or Captain Marvel is that not that they are for men, but that they are, especially in the case of Marvel movies, they're dropping Easter eggs that contribute to the greater franchise mm-hmm. narrative, right? Yeah. That these lead into uh, the next phase of your beloved Avengers yeah. or whatever else. And she talks about wanting to make Charlie's Angels a franchise. Yeah. Um, and then has a great quote that I like where she says, you've had 37 Spider-Man movies and you're not complaining, she says. I mean, everybody's complaining, but that's not the point. <laughs> I think women are allowed to have one or two action franchises every 17 years. I feel totally fine with that. So, confession time. I didn't see Charlie's Angels. Right. And I think it's because… Two reasons. Number one, I'm now old enough that the original, the remake original, yeah. the uh, the 2001 one… 2000. Are fine. Yeah. You're underscoring my point, which is I'm now old enough that that still feels like it's <laughs> yeah. the other day. It's going to be 20 years next year. Jesus. Ugh. 
But like it still yeah. feels recent enough, yeah. right? It's not that I didn't need this movie because I don't care. It's yeah. that I still really enjoyed that one. Yeah. I suppose I sound like a, a Ghostbusters brat mm-hmm. being like, I don't need a new one. Yeah. Um, that's part of it, I think. And part of it was that I'm not sure that I was convinced from the press or the whatnot that this was going to be new in some ways, right? right? Like there are certain properties, and Charlie's Angels is one of them, that people really love so they don't overly – like you pointed out, it's one of the Bosleys and there are changes. But it's also not – it didn't seem so different that I was like, got to see this. I got to make this my thing. Yeah. Should I – like, I feel like I've let down the side. Well, I'm going to I'm gonna be honest. I, when I saw the numbers, I was bummed out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, I really was hoping it was going to do, do well. Is it, like, a great movie? I think it'll be a great movie as it, it goes along. Like, the critics didn't love Charlie's Angels 2000 either. And yet, it's always watchable. Like, when it's on, I'm not changing the channel. I mean, it's so adorable that you still watch movies on broadcast television, (laughs) but. So, so I do think, so yeah, is Charlie's Angels current, um, a super, super good movie? No, I think it's a good enough movie and I, it's a good time. Um, so I'm, I'm really bummed out because I would like for any movie that's pretty good and a good time to do well or just as well as. The Rock movies, which are not great, but a good time. For sure. Right? Yeah. And the thing is, I that's something I associate with Elizabeth Banks projects in general, that they are a good time. 90% of what she does has some element of winking at the camera. Yeah. Right? Whether it's Effie Trinket or pitch perfect. A pitch oh, fucking pitch perfect. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All of them. Or even like the Lego movies. Yeah. Uh, or I turned around the other day and uh, heard on my kid was watching Netflix and I'm pretty sure she was doing a voice in like a random Garfield movie. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's winks all the time. And in the marketing of the current Charlie's Angels, I'm not saying in the film, but in the marketing there was not something that winked at me in a, in the way that made it really necessary for me to see it right away. Does that make sense? Yeah. For yeah. you, I think for, for me, you, I mean, for you, yeah. That's my brand of what falls in my right. Venn diagram. Right. For me. Okay, so what we're talking about is what happens when you put something, a lot of things into it, and you stumble. Is this good work in recovery? Yeah, I hope so. I I want to believe that it is good work. Um, Absolutely, it is good to get out there and be like, well, that didn't work, on to the next, right? It's that thing, that, that lesson we have to take from gymnasts. You know, when we all get like gymnastics obsessed during the Olympic years, They literally fall on their asses sometimes. Yeah. And then wow us the next time out. You have to get to the next at bat. And it's hard to do in public. And it's hard to do the thing where, like that tweet is the metaphorical equivalent of biting the inside of your cheeks so you don't cry. Right. Right. 
which isn't to say you shouldn't cry. Everybody knows you want to cry. Um, so it's a hard thing to land, pardon the now mangled metaphor. <laughs> so I, I, it's mostly good work, I think. Um, I just wish it was a win, but they can't all be wins, right? Yeah, I, I, I think that we have a good comparison in a calendar year um, in terms of recovery and where, that, where this lands. Um, because the, the first thing or one of the first things that popped to mind when I saw specifically Elizabeth's tweet mm-hmm. about at least have your name appear four times, which I thought was a good tweet, mm-hmm. is I thought about Olivia Wilde. And I'm so, I felt, I thought the same thing. Go on. Right? Yeah. So Booksmart came out. Booksmart was like played so well at South by Southwest. Um, People said it was going to be the funniest movie of the year. It was an independent film, um, had the independent film vibe, but they decided to go wide release with it instead of staggered release, limited release, letting it build word of mouth, which is typically what films of this budget and vibe, the path that they go on. Right. They decided to be aggressive and go wide release and it crashed. It didn't work. And uh, and Olivia went on Twitter and she was like, you know what? We're really proud of our movie and it, I chose to go this way and maybe it didn't work out, but I don't think I would change anything. And essentially what she was saying is I swung for the fences. And I think we talked about this in a previous episode. We swung for the fences. Sometimes you're going to strike out, but I'm going to keep swinging for the fences. And I love that. I loved it. Absolutely. And like to be out in front of it, don't slink away silently. You sort of go, well, this was a, yeah, this was a raspberry. Here I am owning it. Yeah. Right. Is a much easier way to talk about it. Then you don't have somebody in an interview later on being like, so that flop. You're like, no, I said it first. I got there out in front first. Right. Yeah. I think the sort of behind the scenes reason that this is hard is that what's at stake here isn't just a a success versus a flop, right? It's about, it, you know, it's not for nothing that we're, like the movie audiences, feature film audiences are so not even fractured. They're mm-hmm. like um, bisected, right? Yeah. There are big, huge, massive movies with big, huge, massive casts, concepts, budgets. Yeah. And then there's everything else where everything else is a much lesser deal than it was 20 years ago. Right. right? There used to be a mid-budget movie, a mid-star movie. Mm -hmm. And now basically anything that isn't a huge action franchise is an indie. Yeah. Right? Like that's an oversimplification, but kind of. So part of what we're talking about here is these women who are saying, yeah, I had a flop, are admitting not just to, hey, that movie didn't do well, but it's also like a strike to be among those big, massive franchises, to be among the vaunted. Yeah. And that maybe is why it feels like it feels like it stings a little bit. Yeah, you're right. And from a recovery perspective, this is where I think that the comparisons diverge with Booksmart and Charlie's Angels, because where Olivia Wilde says, I wouldn't do anything differently, we swung for the fences, I stand by it. I think that for me, 
as an audience member and an analyst of this situation, I buy that, that every decision made was in the moment felt like the right one. And would she go back and do it the same way? Yes. Mm -hmm. Charlie's Angels, I do think, I wonder if Elizabeth Banks, when she might come to the point and the studio might come to the point where, yes, part of the blame, if you want to use that word, is audience readiness and franchises and male audiences and what they will go see. Which that project is, you chose, essentially. Yeah, that's, that is that is part of it. Like what men will go see, that whole thing of women having to support men movies and why can't. Now, I do think that there's some truth to it. Is it necessary to talk about it? Like, or to give it that much weight? That's debatable. At the same time, if and when they're ready, they may want to look at their film in terms of what the casting offered to the audience. Go on. I like this thread. So the original Charlie's Angels had Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, Mm -hmm. at the time, two mega household names. I'm even going to go further because you left out Lucy Liu. I'm coming to her. Go on. And Lucy Liu who may not have been at the same status as Drew and Cameron, but she was in people's homes every week on Ally McBeal. Right. And I guess my point is everything about the culture was different. And she, when she arrived on Ally McBeal as, what was her character's name? Do you remember? No. She was a bombshell. I don't mean in a like boobs and hair kind of way. I mean, Everybody reacted to her. Yeah. She wasn't, she didn't have the like big screen credits, but she, I would say, had as much recognition. Yeah. So at the time, of course, back in the late 90s, 2000s, to go back to your earlier point, Joanna, people watched TV. Uh huh. Conventionally. Like, well, there was only so much to watch. So people were watching yeah. the same things. So a television star on conventional network television had that much more familiarity to a wider audience, Mm -hmm. especially in America. So you have these three stars who you cast in this IP, Charlie's Angels, and that's a great start, right? Sure. Here, in this case, you have Kristen Stewart, recognizable 100%, but you have two relative newcomers. Yep. And Kristen Stewart has a devoted fan base. Yes. But not necessarily a fan base where there's an enormous amount of crossover where they want a, like, a breakthrough Charlie's Angels reboot, maybe. Right? Sure. Yeah. Um, I get it. But even one person's fan base, like, if it was just Cameron Diaz and two relative unknowns, it would have been the same. Like, when it's a three-person Charlie's Angels, you kind of need all three to be pulling in. Right. Yes. And so it's Kristen Stewart with two relative newcomers, Naomi Scott and Ella Belinska, who are lovely and wonderful and young, and they have great careers in front of them, but they're not Cameron Diaz and Lucy Liu or Drew Barrymore and Lucy Liu or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I go back to, we discussed this two years ago, the original rumors when this was happening, Mm -hmm. Charlie's Angels reboot, there was a name that we were both excited about. And her name is Janelle Monae. Oh, yeah. Oh, good memory. And the Janelle Monae rumor got us both excited. Do you remember your excitement? Yeah, now I do. Well, even now, like I would have 
yeah, I would have gone to, yes, but it would have been a different movie. Like all, yes. It would have been a different movie. It's clearly not the story they're telling. Having said that, these are the things that in recovery, like after you stumble, when or if do you think Elizabeth Banks gets to the point where she can clearly say to herself, hey, what if it was Janelle Monae and Kristen Stewart? And And Brie Larson. And whoever, right? Yeah. I mean, again, sometimes when we make comparisons, it's worrisome that you're comparing uh, only to women. And that's not the case here. But I want to point out… Ling Wu. Pardon me? Ling Wu. That was her name. Yes. Of course it was. Um, That was, of course, Lucy Liu's character name on Alan McBeal. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Mm Mm-hmm. And the debate over whether or not there needed to be another Little Women, especially when so many people loved the 1994 version, right? Yeah. Which itself was pretty full of names. Sarandon. Winona. Kirsten Dunst. Claire Danes. And poor Trini Alvarado. And Christian Bale, who was, even then, was a big, big deal. Yeah. So... Then if you go, no, no, guys, it is time. It is time to reboot Little Women. It's time for me. Here are the names. Saoirse Ronan, mm-hmm. Emma Watson, mm-hmm. Timothy Chalamet, mm-hmm. Laura Dern, uh-huh. Bob Odenkirk. And where's the big drop? And, you know, a woman called Meryl Streep. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's, if you're going to do it, you're right. You got to go big, big, big. Right? It's, I don't know. I feel, I feel all kinds of ways about it. And then I just don't know if there's as much love. I remember there was a, um, a Dukes of Hazzard reboot, uh, years ago, like in the sort of aughts somewhere. Yeah. And it Simpson. Right. And it was one of those things where I sort of went, I don't think as many people care about the Dukes of Hazard for mm-hmm. the nostalgia factor yeah. as, as this movie thinks they do. Yeah. And I do wonder if that's the case with Charlie's Angels as well. It doesn't have what Little Women has. It doesn't have as much of an of a cross-generational endurance. Okay, but here's the thing. Fuck me, because I wasn't saying this prior to the release of Charlie's Angels. I was excited mm-hmm. and I was supportive and I was in. Yeah. I'm only saying this. Because it didn't do well. Because it didn't work. Right. Or at least it didn't work financially. Let me be clear. It still works for me as a piece of enjoyment, a good time. I've already said that. But it didn't work. And so I'm looking for the reasons. Well, and it this is where it becomes almost too, too big, where there's outsized importance on it, right? Um, there's an article that Elizabeth Banks, uh, an interview that Elizabeth Banks did with Fast Company a few weeks ago, and they asked her about, how, do you feel pressure for this movie to have an outsized cultural impact to make this film into an event? And her response is really interesting. She says, Um, you feel it as a person who makes their living in Hollywood, wondering how do you get people to leave their house? I love going to the movies and I would like for my part of my, like, I would like for part of my legacy in Hollywood to be preserving that tradition. You're saying 
you are still into it as a piece of entertainment, that you still are into it as a product for what it is, but ultimately it didn't get you to leave your house. And that's the bar kind of, right? Is especially for films, that's why everything is feeling so high stakes, especially when everything else that feels culturally important, every other album, show, whatever, literally we can get from our couches. The bar has to be bigger now to leave the house. And there's a little footnote here, which is that last week or a couple of weeks ago, um, the Hollywood Reporter uh, dropped an article that Margot Robbie and uh, the writer of Birds of Prey, Christina Hodson, have launched a female-driven action movie writing program, i.e. they're going to have a small group, a four-week program, uh, to help female writers to work up action features. Uh, The projects are intended to be original action features with the aim of demonstrating the participants' ability to write action. Because, you know, to grossly summarize what we've just been talking about, only action movies make people leave the house. Only huge action movies. So how can more people do them? How can more people make successful action movies is what this program is about. But you saw it, what, when it dropped or yeah. a screener, screening yeah. just before? We've talked three dozen times since then. You didn't say to me, you got to go see Charlie's Angels. That's a great point. You know what I mean? Like the bar for it's a good piece of entertainment is good, but you and I have also been on countless text threads where we harangue each other Mm -hmm. to watch the thing. Or read the thing or, yeah. Or do the thing the third time. I just told everybody in the previous story to watch the interview again. And it just didn't land big enough for you to, to make that much noise about it. And I suspect that's sort of a meta statement, right? Listen, I've seen Hustlers three times. Oh, my God. Yeah, I would go again right now. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I Listen, and I, I want to reiterate all this shit you can say after the fact. We're having a different conversation if people showed up. I guess it's the chicken and the egg. Would people have showed up if there was the program in place or if there was a Janelle Monet in place. But if there had been something notable in the film to talk about, then we would have been talking about that, right? It's You didn't go to bed thinking about it. Nobody is writing think pieces about that one moment in the movie. And that doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it's... Well, I hate to extend the conversation, but I also don't think that way about the rock movies that are literally the equivalent of Charlie's Angels. Well, that's fair, yeah. And those movies are making so much money. Like, I have probably seen every rock movie that has come out in the last six or seven years, and I can't remember the names of them, and I don't know what happens. And when they come on TV and I watch it again, I have forgot that I forget what is about to happen. (laughs) I mean, that's… Except for Jumanji. I remember every scene in Jumanji. That is the oddest clarification. I fucking love that movie. Right. Anyway. But, okay, I mean, I think, yeah, the the overarching sentiment here is it's it's there, it's fine, but it, it didn't knock anybody no, on their asses. No, she has a point, is my overarching, my takeaway, she has a point, it's not 100% of the point. And I hope that, you know, her point about men going to see movies and all of that 
definitely there's something there. I do think, though, that she may want to consider the other percentage. Or, yeah, or something that appeals in a different way or, frankly, that feels even more, I don't know, Elizabeth Banks, which is the most damning thing to say. Can you just make it more you? I'm sure that, not that she's listening. She's like, I made it all me. But there we go. And finally, um, someone you introduced to me, I think it was maybe, would it have been four Tony Awards ago? Three or four, I think, yeah. Uh, You, we were, you know, watching the Tony Awards, then we were deciding on our coverage for it on the site. yes, now I remember exactly. We were deciding on the coverage for it on the site, and you said, I'm going to need to write about Cynthia Revo. And I was like, okay. And then your piece came in and I read it on the site and I was like, holy shit, I have to care about Cynthia Revo. So that was, I believe, the color purple. It was definitely the color yep. purple. It was kind of her Broadway breakout anyway. I think it was 2016. And yeah, I think one of the reasons it's weird is that it was one of those things where she was in previews for a long time and she was in the cast with Jennifer Hudson, but Cynthia Revo was getting a lot more of the attention uh, and by the Tonys, maybe it was like that was the end of her run, maybe. Yeah. So that was my introduction to Cynthia Revo. thanks to you, as usual. I do what I can, and you were right. It was 2016. So there you go. I'm giving you the love back. The reason I remember, though, is it's a sad reason because that was the Tonys with Pulse. Well, thanks for, for right, that. Right, I yeah. know. Um, but I just, I wanted to acknowledge, I don't think that you can talk about the Tonys and that year in particular without understanding that there was like, you know, a lot of heartbreak on that night and the Tony Awards tried to uplift it. And as we were talking about our coverage and how we were going to write about it, you wanted to point out Cynthia Revo. And I remember that like the way that we decided how to write and the tone of the the coverage was going to be about not just honoring the victims, but what Broadway represents in relation to the tragedy. Okay. I love that. I love that as a summary of what we said then and of… of Maybe I'm making all of, that up. You remember well, it, right? Well done. Yeah. I'm, anyway, I'm there with you. So I know Cynthia Revo because of you. Mm-hmm. Um, three years later, Cynthia Revo is a possible Oscar nominee uh, for Harriet, but… This is a moment, and um, it's not just Harriet. She's got a lot going on. So what we're doing right now is caring about Cynthia Erivo. Yeah, it is, I guess, a throwback in lots of ways there. Yeah, it's the, do you have to care about? Because her career has been, you know, she's been sort of a name that people know. She has gone to things. She has an iconic look, uh, and maybe we didn't even know how much she was kind of working on in the background, right? Um, the Obviously, the big kind of deal is Harriet. She is starring in Harriet. And as you say, do you think she's going to get a nomination? What's your, what's your real gut? Um, not going to lie. No, don't. The film isn't great. Uh-huh. She's great. The uh-huh. film isn't great. Right. So, um... I think that she is in a tight race for the fifth spot. Yeah. And, you know, 
meanwhile, she was doing, she was in Widows, which was uh, last year's movie that a lot more people should have seen, right? I don't remember the exact ins and outs of how it got sort of stifled. Yeah, it's a great, I love that movie. Um, and it should have gotten more love. It did get stifled. Um for many reasons, but yes, she was in that last year and she's followed that up this year with Harriet. Right. And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the et cetera is, um, you know, perhaps understandably out of something like Harriet, which is sort of a big deal biopic, she's going to play Aretha Franklin in 10 episodes of Genius, uh, which is the season that's coming up in 2020. Uh, And then she's also... Super compelling. I discovered the other day a scripted podcast called Carrier. Thanks, Lisa, who told me about it. And the person who told me about it was like, it's amazing. It's this great podcast. It's super compelling. It is all of those things. And it is a binge like you haven't had since cereal. Like you're in, in, in it. But it wasn't until the end of the first episode when they're like, Carrier stars Cynthia Erivo, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, really? It couldn't be further from these big deal biopics that we're talking about. It is very grounded and then not so much. Um, she's also a producer. I think what we're getting at here is Cynthia Erivo is a good picker, right? Yeah, a good picker, but also, my God, the versatility. I, yeah, Absolutely. I mean, you're going from biopic, but prior to the biopic is a podcast. What a, like, first of all, risky in the sense of, you know, you're, you can do voice work in like the animated films or whatnot, but doing voice work in scripted podcasting is like relatively new terrain. Yeah. And I really, uh, I'm hedging my bets in terms of talking about the podcast, but uh, it is a, uh, she plays a character with a very workaday kind of job. She's a, she is the lead character, but she's often the only voice you hear for a long period of time. Um, she's quite isolated. Yeah. It's a, it's a big move for sure. Yeah. And that show itself is, uh, in talks to be adapted into a series, uh, it'd be a limited series, I would think. So, yeah, it's a lot of it, it is versatile. You're right that well, she can do it. I'm not even done because when we're talking about series, she has an HBO series uh, beginning in January called The Outsider. It's a Stephen King adaptation. Right. Jason Bateman's in it. Jason Bateman will also be directing, I believe, a few episodes. He's been directing on Ozark. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you're going from biopic to podcast, you've already shown that you can do the Tony Awards or like uh, yeah, she Broadway can sing plays. is almost a, <laughs> is almost an asterisk at yeah. this point. Yeah. So this is you know this is someone who's got it all covered. Yeah, and so the choices are what's interesting to me, right? Interspersed between all these high-profile projects like a Stephen King and Aretha Franklin and Harriet Tubman, of course, is she was on an episode of Chewing Gum. Uh, she was on two episodes of Broad City. Uh, there is sort of a an effort to keep it light or to balance it out a little bit. Um, but some people don't choose this well. Mm-hmm. And now 
some projects aren't available to people. And, you know, and then, of course, it's like, well, there are a lot of other people who maybe don't get the opportunities or whatever. But it does seem like she has a real string of, if not hits on her hand, like you said, Harriet is not the greatest movie, but certainly, um, you know, she has very attractive things being offered to her. Yeah. And I think that we talk about this often when people surge all at the same time. It's Mm -hmm. always fascinating to me when, and listen, in, in this business, you can't always control when things come out at the same time. Like the development process sometimes is so long. Studios and networks like to hold things. They like to wait for certain dates to release things. The fact that in the last six months, she has Carrier, Harriet, um, and The Outsider, and Aretha Franklin almost on the go, all of this kind of coming up around award season, you plan it that way. You want it to happen that way. It doesn't always execute that way. Yeah, you hope. That's right. And yet, somehow, if you keep doing the thing and making the right choices, it's going to happen more often than not. And that's really interesting. Yeah. Or you or you hope it does, right? Or you're flexible enough that you can make those things happen or sign on to those things. Yeah. Um, this is why people used to get frustrated when they were on long seasons of television that they couldn't capitalize on the new attention that they were getting, right? right? Um, but, uh, but yeah, you hope that it happens. I guess then the question is, uh, usually when somebody is in this kind of a situation where, as you say, like, she's not going to win, essentially, is what you're saying no. for Harriet. And no. that's, I don't, I don't suspect a lot of people are going to be mad about that, but she's going to be in things, right? In talks, mm-hmm. in interviews, she'll get magazine covers and so forth. Yep. If you were, like, let's play fantasy casting a little bit. If you were Cynthia Revo or her publicist, um, working with her as she dealt with all the press coming on and, you know, everything else, carpets and whatnot, which way do you go? What does she need next? What would you want? Rom-com. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a good rounding out for like, sure. Yeah. We know you can do the other things. Yeah. So show me something a little lighter. But the rom-coms are hard to come by right now, certainly yeah. in film. Mm-hmm. So then what? Do you do an episode of, a, of an anthology TV show, like a Modern Love, for yeah. example? Yeah. Or, you know… Is it a, I don't know, like, should she do one of those live TV musicals that they keep doing, even though nobody <laughs> ever is happy with them? I mean, I, I, I mean, that's a good question because we've just talked about how versatile she is. So she could do anything. Mm-hmm. I love this podcast thing that she has her eyes set on future. Mm-hmm. Where- and I should say she's a producer on it as well. Like, yeah. So she has a vested interest. So there's something really interesting to me about the fact that she is one of those people who's like, let me do the conventional. I've done Broadway. I'm going to do your conventional like biopic. Harriet is pretty a pretty conventional by paint by the numbers biopic. And as we know, uh, and you all emailed us from the uh, unfortunately not that surprising comments from the executive who wanted Julia Roberts yeah. to play it. It's been around for a long time, right? That's the right. idea of the Harriet biopic is not yeah. new. Yeah. 
And you've got, and for her, she's got HBO going on. So we've seen the variety. We've seen the ambition and the creativity in looking ahead to like a, a medium that's only exploding just now in podcasting. So yeah, where to next? I That's why the first thing that popped up in my mind was a light little rom-com, a Netflix rom-com. Why not? Why not? I mean, yeah, the only reason why not is scheduling, I yeah. suppose. But if you had your pick of everything in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, a girl's trip movie. Well, that's where I was kind of going to yeah. go. I would love to see her in something fun and heisty. Yeah. I think that Widows uh, sort of scratched… Uh, Widows wasn't fun. Right. <laughs> but it had elements of that, Yeah. Right? It was a heist. It wasn't fun. There was no lightness. Right. Yeah. But yes, I would like to see her hanging out with some other actresses in a fun way. Yeah. Girls Trip would be great. Yeah. Uh, bridesmaids would be great. Mm-hmm. Something like that would be a, an exciting turn. You know, I was talking about everything converging for her at once and what you hope for and the timing, and it just worked out this way for her. You know who else this is happening to? And it's an interesting conversation and link because they're both in the awards race is Aquafina. Same thing. That is very interesting. Right? So Ocean's 8, right into Crazy Rich Asians, right into... The Farewell does great at Sundance, right into being cast in a Marvel movie opposite Simu Liu for uh, Shang-Chi. The Comedy Central show is coming out early 2020. All of it. She's in the award season picture. She's a, she's a decent shot at getting a Best Actress nomination for her work in The Farewell. All of it, like, uh, like Cynthia Revo, is kind of coming together at the same time. I find it fascinating that two of them are, you know, are in the same room doing the same things. Well, it's funny because clearly that pe- it's satisfying people's appetites for them, right? Yeah. For Aquafina, though, I want, and I never want this, I want a book. And not even necessarily like the traditional comedian book of essays, although I'll take it. I would also like it if she wrote, like, you know, the Lin-Manuel Miranda and Johnny Sun book? Yeah. Like a sort of a motivational slash coffee table book. Yeah. I would love that from Aquafina. I would take a Chrissy Teigen cookbook from Aquafina. I want something of her that I can carry around with me. Well, she's too busy. Well, listen, (laughs) I'm sure there'll be a a period of time, but yes, I hear you. Have you seen Farewell? Not yet. Okay. You've been talking about it for months. And in fact, just to round out this discussion, you did say we were going to it and then you went without me. I. I, yes. You're a bit of a, like, <laughs> you don't have a good track record with, with films. I didn't go without you. I went to a press screening because I had to do the interview. You said, we are going together. We're doing this. And then you sort of slunk out of your mouth a few weeks, months later. <laughs> By the way, I saw it without you. Well, you have to go, you have to see it now because we got to get ready for our awards. I'm season. very excited. Um, on that note, do your homework. I said that uh, Harriet wasn't like it was paint by numbers, but you should still go see it. Everybody, we all are, have to be doing our homework for the Golden Globes, everybody. And so you should go see it um, and see the farewell. Absolutely. That's my homework and your all's as well. And let us know your thoughts. As always, um, keep sending us your feedback. Keep sending us your questions. And definitely keep leaving reviews and comments where you get your favorite podcasts. Hopefully we're one of them. 
Um, speaking of homework and responses, uh, I need to point out that uh, you said uh, last podcast that I say sure too much. I want to sure, s- sure, sure, sure. Uh, I want to say thank you to Teresa, who said and sent a video link to back herself up that Duanna says sure exactly like Julia Roberts. Oh, Teresa, what the fuck? In hey, don't yell at Teresa. Um, <laughs> Teresa, how could you do this to us? She does ask if it's on purpose, like if I'm imitating her. Oh, Teresa, but, you don't know the monster you've created. Well, just for balance, uh, Tara also emailed Tara or Tara and uh, <laughs> sent an article that we will link to in the show notes from the outline. Uh, and the headline is just. Against sure. And the subheading is (laughs) the most passive aggressive affirmative phrase is a thumbs up to your face and a jerk off motion behind your back. That's sure. So if Teresa lifted me up, Tara brought me right back down to earth. Thank you, Teresa. Thank you, Tara. We will be back next week. Thank you for listening. Bye. Show your work. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.